Awesome. Well, thanks. Uh, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here, uh, worshiping with us on this extremely hot day. Uh, Rachel and I, actually, so first, I, I woke up at 5, like 30 this morning, and I got to my computer at 5.45, and I checked the temperature. It was already 75 degrees, and I was like, man, should I call out sick? Can I call out sick today and go to the pool? But no, I'm, I'm glad, <laughs> glad to be here. Rachel and I actually went to a wedding yesterday, and it was outside, and we were sitting there melting away. And we looked over, and the elderly family members got to sit in the shade to the right. And I was like, man, I wish I was older today. Uh, But we were stoked to be there. At that wedding, the pastor actually said, he was like, uh, you know, like bride and groom, look around. Do you see everybody who was here? These are the people who are faithful to you that love you more than the heat. Uh, And so... The heat, I think, is letting us see who is faithful today, this morning, to be at church or to be online. Like, you could be at the pool right now, and I would not fault you, but you are the faithful few, so we're stoked that you're here. Um, For those of you who don't know, my name's Kevin, my wife Rachel right there. We uh, attended uh, at what was then Endeavor. Rachel attended, I think, starting her freshman year at Multnomah. I started attending my next year, uh, and then we... Both started attending together and then got married and lived in Portland. So we had been a part of Family of Grace for since its inception, and that was, that was really cool coming in. It was fun coming a couple weeks ago and seeing how different the building has changed and what it looks like, but still seeing old, familiar faces. Um, there have been many changes in the Portland area, but it's been so good for us every time we get to come back and worship, especially with our friends here at Family of Grace. So we're so thankful for you guys to have us. I hope, I don't know if uh, Jordan announced that we would be down here, but thank you for not leaving when you saw us. Like you, you had that option. So uh, no, but we're, we're stoked to be here. The reason we left three years ago was because Rachel's home church Uh, had offered us a youth director position as we were support raising to go on the mission field. Uh, And through a lot of prayer and talking with the elders here at Family of Grace and our mentors, we felt like God was opening up that door for us to to step through as we were preparing to go overseas. Uh, And we made a two-year commitment uh, at this church and we, we decided during that two-year commitment to, to keep remaining faithful to this call that God had on our lives to head overseas, to share with people who had never heard about Jesus, about who Christ is and, and the good news of who he is. And so once we were married, our, our, our calling in that continued to solidify and intensify as we walked through this next step. And at uh, the point when we headed off to family or to uh, Lifeway Church in Federal Way, Washington, uh, it was really cool for us to have the support and the encouragement of Family of Grace. And we are so thankful for that, and, and to, to have that relationship has been so good for us. Uh, we loved being here with our Portland friends and family and our church family here, and it has been so sweet the few times we've gotten to come back. This is actually my second time preaching at uh, Family of Grace. The first time, if you'll remember, was all the way at the pandemic, and I was supposed to be here in person, and that was the Sunday that they shut everything down. And so I did it for, from Facebook Live, which was the worst way of preaching a sermon. <laughs> I'm so glad to be with you in person because this is so much better. Um, so our two years in uh, Federal Way turned into three because of the pandemic. Uh, if you'll remember, Rachel and I were support raising to head to Austria to work with Middle Eastern refugees. And 
honestly, throughout the whole pandemic, as our date kept getting pushed back further and further, we never felt like God was changing that. And we never felt like God was uh, taking away our desire. And then a couple months ago in February, uh, for the first time ever, uh, in our close to five years of marriage, at that point we were four and a half, we felt like God might be switching something. And through a lot of prayer and, and conversation with our, our organization and our elders and our mentors and friends, uh, we decided to walk through another door that God was opening up. And so now we're happy to announce that we'll be heading to the Middle East uh, this summer. So the heat, I think, is just preparation, further preparation for what we will experience soon. But We'll be heading to the Middle East, so we actually leave the Pacific Northwest at the end of, or in mid-July, and we'll be launching to the Middle East in uh, the end of August, beginning of September, as we transition to still work with Middle Eastern refugees, but just in a little bit more of a focused and uh, a specialized pathway. So we're excited for that. Uh, Throughout this whole process of this transition and change, we've ha- constantly had to go to God, not only in prayer, uh, but, but in just uh, quiet listening to him uh, for wisdom and discernment, uh, strength to stay focused when it would have been so easy to walk away uh, from God's call on our lives. We've had to constantly seek out wise counsel from those around us who, who God has placed in leadership over us to our church partners who have been supporting us, not only prayerfully, but also financially. We've wanted to stay faithful to that. Uh, we do this uh, for a number of reasons, but most importantly, throughout this process, we try to remain faithful and soak in God's word. Uh, to spend time in God's word and allow that word to dictate how we then live our lives. And, and throughout all of that, one of the things we have seen is, is what I wanted to talk about today is, is how Jesus is our model for ministry. He is our model for ministry. God's word is, and the, the Bible as our authority is how we should then live our lives. It's what dictates what we do, how we think. Uh, where we go, whatever, it's, it's all in here because Jesus is our model for ministry. So for Rachel and I, who are now getting ready to move over 6,000 miles across the world to a new country, to a new language, and to a new culture, we can find comfort knowing that Jesus is our model of ministry. And I think for the same way here, you at Family of Grace, whether you're new to this church family, whether you're listening online, or whether you've been a part of this since the whenever faith or endeavor were started, uh, whether you've just met Jesus or you've been a mature believer, I think you too can find comfort knowing that Jesus is our model of ministry. What's coming next for Family of Grace, for Rachel and I, for whoever, wherever you're going, we can find comfort in Jesus being our model for ministry. The more you read God's word, the more you soak in his word, the more you look to his word to see how you should submit to it and and live under it, uh, how it should change and move our lives. The more we are in tune with his ways, the more we see that. I think if you're using the Bible only as a reference book for comfort in a a difficult time or or to, to find a little tidbit of wisdom in the Proverbs here and there, those are helpful and good, but if you're only using it that way, you're missing out on so much of the story. I love how the Bible Project states it when it says that the Bible is a unified story that points us to Jesus, that leads to Jesus. That is because we can look to Jesus as our model for ministry, or I should say it's in light of that that we can look to Jesus as our model for ministry. And so that's what I want to talk about today as we jump into 
the passage. We're going to be reading from a passage that's one of my favorites. In fact, uh, I, I was telling Hannah earlier, today is, I think, my 28th sermon preaching in my adult vocational ministry life. And I preached on this passage three times because I, I love it so much. Uh, and, and so I'm excited to jump into it. It's in Matthew. It's found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. So I'll give you a moment to get there. Uh, I am reading from the ESV. Um, so if you have a different version, then that's good too. <laughs> but Matthew 9, 35 through 38. I want to read it first, and then we'll kind of spend some time walking through it. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And may God bless the reading of his word. This passage comes at the kind of the middle of the section of the book of Matthew where Jesus is bringing about the kingdom into people's lives. And, and in fact, it's really a summary statement of chapters 5 through 9. It's not only a summary of chapters 5 through 9 of what's just happened, but it's also meant as an introduction, a transition to what will happen in the coming chapters as well. This passage invites us to reflect and, and look upon Jesus and, and his method and his motivation and his mandate. And so that's how I want to split up the passage today. I want to look first at his, his method and how that method applies to us. And then look at his motivation, because I think we can learn a lot from the motivation of Jesus. And then look at, finally, his mandate in the passage. And yes, I did do that super intentionally, and I was super stoked about the three M's. So I'm hoping, uh, Trevor's here, and we had homiletics together, so I'm hoping he can give me a good grade after this. Uh, so first, let's look to his method in, in verse 35. 35 tells us that Jesus was, went throughout the area teaching and proclaiming. And I, and I love that because we're, again, he's traveling throughout, and I saw one commentator talk about this as the Galilean period. So he's, he's really in one area, but it doesn't necessarily matter where he is. What, what matters is that he went to all those vi cities and villages. He went to the people, and he taught, and he proclaimed. He went to the synagogues, the places of worship where the Jewish people would gather to hear from the word of God. We know that Matthew was actually writing primarily to a Jewish audience or a Jewish Christian audience. So they would have heard synagogue and knew exactly what that meant, what that looked like, what that smelled like. They were, Jesus was going to the places of worship and it was there that they would have gone to gather to hear the word of God. And now we see Jesus as the word of God going to preach the word of God to the people. I wonder what it would have been like to hear teachings from the Word of God by the Word of God. I can only imagine to those who had ears to hear what life would have come from those conversations or what life would have come from those teachings, how the words would have sounded so sweet to the ears. Now, the fact that the text distinguishes between teaching and proclaiming, I think, is important. In other versions, it says teaching and preaching. 
To me, this signifies that there is a difference. And I think often when you say teaching and preaching, we, we kind of think the same thing or we assume that we're talking about the same thing, but in fact, they're different. For sure, they relate together, and I think that it's, you don't necessarily have one without the other, but there is a difference. And it's important to understand that in regards to our faith. You can think of teaching as imparting wisdom or truth into somebody. Now, I'm, I'm hesitant to bring this up in a room filled with so many scholars, but the Greek word for teaching, uh, I think, is important. And so for those of you who know Greek way better than me, uh, feel free to correct me afterwards when I pronounce it wrong or, or whatever. But uh, the word for teaching is didasko or didasku, depending on uh, what region of Greece you're from. No, I'm just, uh, it's didasko, and it means to tell someone to do something, to instruct, to provide teaching in, in a formal setting. So at the teaching of the Bible, one can expect to find wisdom and instruction that will help in their knowledge of spiritual things. We for sure need to go to the Bible and be taught by the Bible. For the believer, we should desire strong and clear and intentional teaching from those whom God has placed in leadership above us. We ought to strive for, for solid teaching from God's word so that we may know the truth that sets us free, right? Preaching, on the other hand, differs slightly, and, and I think in a few significant ways. Preaching or proclaiming here is the Greek word kariso or caruso, and it's used to signify a herald, right? Like somebody who is going on behalf of somebody else with authority to make a proclamation. Often you can think of pictures of a kingdom and where the king sends somebody as a herald to go tell the townspeople something on behalf of the king. I love the way that J.I. Packard says it when he was talking about preaching and what it includes. He says that preaching is a pressing of his commands promises, warnings, and assurances with a view of winning hearers or the hearer to getting a positive response. People, both the original hearers of this book and us today, need both teaching and preaching. We need to be instructed in the ways of God and, and what he commands so that we might obey, right? The Great Commission, teach them to obey the, everything that Jesus has taught. But we also need that reminder, that encouragement, that rebuke, that, that assurance of our faith, the assurance of his promises and for those who are still outside the kingdom, so those who have not yet uh, come to a saving relationship with Jesus, they need to be worn through and, and won by the teaching and preaching of God's word that leads to life. It's this teaching and preaching that we see Jesus doing all throughout the region, in the, in the synagogues and to the people, that then is followed by a healing of every disease and every affliction. I love this imagery, where the gospel goes, there is life. Where the gospel goes, there is healing. Wherever Jesus goes, life follows, because Jesus is life. To a Jewish audience who would have had a high view and a high understanding of the fact that diseases made us unclean and unable to approach the most holies of holies, this would have been shocking. Diseases often kept people away from God, and now God himself, through Jesus Christ, was healing every disease and affliction. 
At one time, human diseases and brokenness meant that we were unable to touch the Holy One. And now through Jesus, the Holy One in touching us is able to heal. Through the teaching and proclamation of God's word, human diseases and brokenness are unable to remain untouched by the Holy One. Now, I don't know what sorts of hurts and diseases and brokenness, whether that's physical ailments or hurts in the body or whether that's spiritual trauma or past hurts by, by whatever it may be. I don't know what you are bringing here today to the church. But I do know that when you bring them to Jesus, he will ultimately be unfaithful to heal. Whatever we bring, whatever hurt, nothing is too far off for Christ to heal now, the, unfortunately, re, uh, the unfortunate reality for many of us is that we have all been affected to some capacity by brokenness, by de- diseases. We've been all touched by sin and death around us. And the unfortunate reality is that we often don't see a resolution here on earth. For some of us, the diseases, the hurt, the brokenness that you're feeling now may last for quite some time. And I wish I could tell you that today they're going to be gone. And, and they could be, for sure. I think God is powerful to do that. But we also see that ultimately he will. He is faithful to one day wipe away every tear. We can take heart because in the midst of all of the brokenness and the diseases and the, the hurt and, and whatever it is, we can turn to him and find comfort in the chaos knowing that whether it is this life or the next, that Jesus will heal heal them eventually, that all things will be made right. We can hold fast to the truth of that. We can hold fast to him. Now, as we'll see in a moment, we'll see that Jesus actually does see you and he cares deeply for what you're going through. I think often it's, it's, uh, we have a tendency to feel so alone and isolated when we're going through something difficult, whether it's a physical ailment or, or a spiritual or emotional trouble. We can often feel isolated as if God doesn't see, but the truth that we're about to look in is that he does. He is there. He is compassionate to see. So just in this one first verse in verse 35, we see that a key to our ministry methodology, if, if Jesus is our model for ministry, then our first steps need to be the teaching and preaching of God's word. And the desire to then, through that, meet the physical needs of the people, of those we seek to serve. We have just taken a look at Jesus' method, that, that same method that ought to be ours. And now let's switch to looking at his motivation in the next verse. Motivation, where we see Jesus seeing and caring for the people. Verse 36 is for me, one of the most beautiful verses of Scripture because it reminds us just how much and just how deeply Jesus cared and loved for his people. Again, the word here for compassion, and I can never say it right. I often have to ask Rachel to say it for me, but it's uh, splanknon, or I I know that's not right, but it's splanknon. Just trust me on it, I guess. You can look it up later. Uh, Or splankzami, or do you remember, Rachel? I can never say it right, so I didn't tell her I was going to ask her that. (laughs) But the word for compassion here, splanknon, it gets at a deeper word than just this surface level emotion. 
It gives at, at for sure having pity or having an affection, but it goes deeper than that, deeper than the surface level. Jesus is not saying, I'm, I'm sorry that that's happening to you, or like, man, I just feel bad that everybody's like tired or hurting. Like Jesus here is saying that the, the, the cries of the crowds, the helplessness of the crowds, the harassment that the crowds are facing is, is cutting him deeply into his gut. It's hitting him and his inward parts is what the text says. His compassion for the crowds hits him deeply. Here we see that the heart of the Lord is deep for his children and for his creation. Jesus looked at those people who were gathering around wherever he went, the crowds, and he saw them like they were sheep without a shepherd, like they were helpless aimless, wandering alone and hurt. The people who were meant to lead them, the, the leaders of Israel had failed them and they were helpless. They needed guidance and protection. They needed someone to teach and proclaim. Now, I'll never forget the moment in my life where I felt this the most, the compassion that Jesus had the most. I was on a summer internship in, in the south of Lebanon in Tyre and Sidon. So right above Israel, and I was helping out with a medical missions team. My jobs uh, were simple because I have zero medical experience or anything. So my jobs were simply to carry things for the, the doctors and nurses. And then I got to hand out pills, and when, like the doctor would bring a note, and I'd be like, I can read that, so here's a little packet of pills and baggie of vitamins and things like that. Most importantly, my job, my role was to pray during the medical missions as the doctors were meeting with the refugees. One day on the trip, we were setting up in this building and we were on the second or third floor so that the doctors could have a little bit more privacy with the patients and so that people could get out of the heat. Um, though the building didn't actually have air conditioning, it was out of the sun, which was a small respite for people. Towards the end of the day, an older lady came up, uh, and she was asking for help. So through the interpretation of some of our uh, Arabic-speaking friends who were there, we found that uh, she actually had a daughter who needed to see the doctors, but couldn't. She wasn't strong enough to get the daughter up the couple of flights of stairs. And so I had to go down and help. I went down, and what I saw immediately broke my heart. This girl, who couldn't have been more than 10 years old, was lying there on a bench just waiting, unable to move because she had some form of muscular dystrophy. Her, her bones and skin were basically not there as she couldn't even move her arms. Uh, so I, I picked her up, and immediately the, the stench of, of urine and sweat from probably the day's trip of getting there just like overwhelmed me. Uh, the, the girl, I was so worried as I was carrying her that I was going to break her because her bones seemed so brittle. Uh, but what broke my heart the most was not her physical or outward appearance. It was at the moment that I looked into her eyes and, and all I saw was just a deep anger and a deep disdain. She, she seemed so hateful in that moment. And I can only imagine what had gone on in her life, what she had experienced to be 10 years old and already have the eyes of somebody who had experienced something traumatic. The whole time that I was carrying her up the flights of stairs, I prayed for her as I carried her. And, and honestly, I can still see her face in my mind today, and I'm, I'm moved to tears constantly when I think about her uh, for too long. But I'm comforted by the fact that Jesus Christ sees that little girl and that he has compassion for her. 
that he is moved to his inward being when he sees the hurt and the brokenness that we experience as a result of sin. He desires to know that girl in the same way that he desires to know you and I here. I don't know what happened to that girl, and honestly, I don't know whether or not she is still alive today, whether our prayers for her to come to know the love of Christ were answered when we we asked God to soften her heart and bring her into right relationship with him, but I I don't even know if the the conversations we had with her her mother or grandmother who brought her there worked, that, that they received the message of Jesus, but I do know that this brokenness in the same way that the brokenness in your life and my life, it, it hits Jesus deeply. It's out of that brokenness that breaks Jesus' heart that should continue to motivate us to see the crowds as well, to see the people walking on the street by us. The motivation that Jesus has for ministry comes at the seeing of the people, at the seeing of the needs of those outside of the kingdom who are perishing. Motivation comes when we see people who are harassed and helpless, harassed by the pressures of life, exhausted by the pace of life, going nowhere and being led astray by false beliefs, who are dying without ever hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. Our motivation comes when we hear and see those people. And so for the believer here today, to the one who has a relationship with Jesus, I I hope that you can take heart and be encouraged to look outside of ourselves to those who are, uh, look outside of even the present sufferings that you have so that you can see the needs of those who, who are suffering and don't have the comfort of eternal life in Christ who have yet to come to that new life. And for the one here today who may feel harassed and helpless in the world today, the one who uh, is, is not in right relationship with Jesus, maybe you've never actually submitted or repented of sins and, and turned towards him, for you who is harassed and helpless, I hope that you'll see that the good shepherd that is Jesus Christ is calling you to come find comfort. He's calling, like he's begging you to come to him because he died on the cross for you and desires for you to be in right relationship with him. You can find comfort and rest and restoration and and ultimately forgiveness of sins through him. You're not too far off. None of us are. If Jesus is our model of ministry, then, then here we see that our motivation for the lost should be a deep compassion for the brokenness that they experience and a desire to point them towards Christ, to point them to the good news of Jesus. And so now let's take a look at the final two verses in this passage to see how they might motivate us forward. In them we see his mandate, his mandate for us to be praying And then what we see in later chapters that I'll talk about today for some of us to go. Jesus' response to the crowds in verses 37 and 38 is simple. He looks, his response to the crowds is to look to his disciples and say, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There is much work to be done. Great need is all around us. I think Family of Grace, more than most churches, is in a a strategic location to see just how great the need is and to see just how overwhelming that need is. 
having compassion for those who are harassed and helpless can sometimes be so draining and discouraging. The work feeling so daunted that we're often frozen in action, frozen to action because we don't even know where to begin. How can we, with our limited resources, our limited numbers, our own problems, our own struggles, how can I actually make a difference when I myself am so hurt and broken? What do we have to offer? Family of Grace, the thought that we have nothing to offer might be one of the greatest lies that the enemy has ever pulled over the church. God does not desire to use those mega churches or those only those mega churches or only those who have unlimited resources or only the strongest or the best of us. God does not desire to only use them to win the loss. In fact, Paul tells us the opposite, right? When he says that God desires the weak things to shame the wise. God wants to use us. In, in fact, it's when we allow God to use us despite what we have not that we see him be glorified the most. The good news of the gospel message is that it's not about what, we, what you have to offer in and of yourself. It's about what has already been offered to you and now through you. Jesus Christ does not need you to fix the problems of our world and our community. He invites you in to be used by him so that he can. And it's precisely when we have nothing to offer that Jesus comes in and uses us for his glory. So here we see in the passage that we simply are invited in and mandated to pray to the Lord to send out workers. We're, we're invited to pray earnestly to the Lord. Jesus didn't tell his disciples, listen, they're harassed and helpless. Go out and organize them into groups. Like, like, he didn't give them some tangible thing to do. First, he said, start with prayer. I think we often forget just how powerful prayer can be. I have seen personally, and I'm sure there's many other stories, of ways God has answered prayers in our lives and far way, uh, in, in ways far better than what I could have planned myself or what I could even have imagined. I've seen God answer prayers in some miraculous ways, and yet just as quickly as those prayers are answered, I forget that he did. I can often forget the ways in which God has moved. I don't get why we so easily doubt that God will move when we've seen him do it before. We've so see, uh, clearly seen him move in the past, and yet we doubt that he'll move in the future. Prayer is powerful, and it works. The best kind of prayer is the prayer that aligns our hearts with his. And what is God's heart? Well, here we see God's heart for the crowds who are helpless to find rest, to find forgiveness, to find new life in Christ. We are invited in and, and really commanded at this moment to be in prayer for that. Notice how, again, Jesus does not command his disciples to meet the crowd's physical needs. He does not command them to even uh, reach the crowds themselves. He commands them to pray to the Lord of the harvest who would raise up workers. And I think as we pray God's heart, what we see is God start to change ours. Again, I had the opportunity a number of years ago to preach at a church in Camas, Washington, uh, when I was fresh out of college, and, and I preached uh, this passage. It was, the, I think, my first time preaching this passage. 
uh, and, I, and I preached on how God, and I was trying to remind them how God can use anybody, regardless of age, regardless of experience, regardless of gender, regardless of how far off you are or how near you are. Like, God can use anybody for his mission to the world. And after the service, this older lady came up to us, to Rachel and I, and, and she said something to the effect of, like, man, I wonder if I'll be here next week because now I feel like I should go. And I think she was in her late 60s. And she had a desire now. She's like, I can go hold babies in, in some orphanage and, and pray over them. Like, I can go. Like, whatever she had to offer, she had a desire now to go and be used by God. And I remember being so surprised by her response and even wondering how I was surprised when I just preached that message. But I, I too, doubt often how God can use us despite what we don't have. The more we pray for God's will to be done— the more we will see how he wants to use us to make that happen. And, and honestly, that's a scary prayer to pray. But family of grace, that is perhaps the most important, one of the, the best prayers we can pray. Prayer is what Jesus' workers are supposed to do first and foremost. And it's through that prayer that we then will see Jesus send out some of those workers. The term for workers here is the same term used later in Matthew 10, verse 10, when he's telling them to not take any possessions or, or knapsack or any staff, cloak, whatever. Don't take anything and just go. It's the same word there. Remember that this passage is a transition passage between all that Jesus had done and all that he then invites his followers to do in the following ones. So I would highly encourage you the rest of this week as you're praying for uh, the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers in his harvest, that you would read these next passages because for some of you, God might call you to go, and, and in the next passages, you can see what that means, what you could experience, how you could be motivated through that. And as you pray, especially as you pray as a church, do not be surprised when God continues to call people out of family of grace for the field. Do not be surprised when you see God use people you would least expect to win souls and hearts for him. Do not be surprised when you see miraculous restoration in people's lives upon the hearing of God's word. If Jesus is our model for ministry, then we see here a mandate to pray that God would raise up workers into the harvest. And I'd invite you to simply consider start today by setting a, an alarm for 938. It's one of my favorite tangible ways to be reminded. Set an alarm for 938, and twice a day you'll pray verses 9 or chapter 9, verse 38. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. And I think what would, uh, I think we would see amazing things happen. Could you imagine what would happen in the world if his followers were praying this twice a day? I think we would see miraculous movements of people coming to faith. I hope that through this passage, you have seen that Jesus is our model for ministry and that he gives us a method, right, to teach and preach the gospel that leads to life. He gives us a motivation, a motivation to see the crowds restored to life in Christ, see those who are helpless and harassed, and he gives us a mandate to pray for God to raise up workers to go into his harvest and point people to Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus today, then you have a role to play in this mission. 
And it's your job to prayerfully as a church figure out what that role is for each and every one of you. Some people here are called to go into the harvest. And it might not be who you expect. Some people are called to send through prayer, through finances, through short-term trips going over. But all of us are called to be a part of God's mission to the lost. How might God use you today to accomplish that? How might you become better equipped in sharing the good news of the gospel and, and in loving people well for the kingdom? Some of you may never leave the Portland metro area. Some of you may simply stay here and pray and, and see things change. Some of you may be surprised by who God calls out to go. How can we as a church prepare ourselves and equip ourselves even today to follow after Jesus as our model for ministry. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your grace and for your love. We thank you, Lord, that it is not by what we can do, but it's by what has been done for us, Father. We thank you for Christ on the cross, who taking our sins upon himself, died and rose again three days later, conquering sin and allowing new life for those who would repent and believe. We thank you, Father, that we can be called sons and daughters of the King. Lord, I pray that you would raise up workers out of family of grace, whether they go 6,000 miles over the ocean or whether they stay right here. I pray that you would raise up workers who would see the harvest and would be used by your Holy Spirit to bring about life change to those who have not yet heard the gospel. Lord, I pray that through family of grace, we would see thousands and thousands of people come to faith in Jesus. That we would see brokenness restored. That we would see uh, sin healed. Lord, I pray that you would direct and guide Family of Grace in, in the direction that they would go. That you would equip them well. That you would use each and every one here today to make your name known to those who have not yet heard. Father, we pray this all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.